0: is the big ponder. As the owner of a restaurant, I
1: think I've met a lot of people. Well, a few thousand.
2: I mean,
0: well, I met a lot. More than 300.
3: I am sure it's only hundreds. I don't think... Uh, yeah, thousands of people,
4: no. Have you ever wondered how many people you've met in your life?
5: 2,500. 45,000?
4: 800? I'm going to say 50,000 people. My guess is 20,000, maybe. Just because I'm over 50 and I lived in a couple of big cities, that's my guess. What about you Susanna?
5: Hmm. I really have no idea, but I do love the question. So, how many people have I met in my life? How many people do we meet over a lifetime on average? We're going to find out. I'm Susanna Edelbaum. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. And on this episode of The Big Ponder, we share stories about encounters.
3: I was always interested in randomness and how random it is random, actually.
4: First, we do the math. And for that, we get a professional.
3: My name is uh, Christian Hesse. I've been working uh, at the University of uh, Stuttgart for, wow, almost uh, 30 years now as a mathematician and uh, especially um, on uh, mathematical statistics. And I teach and do research. Yeah, uh, that's uh, basically what I do uh, professionally.
4: We wanted to find out how many people Susanna has met so far. So we passed along some information about Susanna's life to Christian Hesse. Things
5: like, I have two half-sisters and four first cousins. I lived in New York where I went to preschool until I was four. Of course,
4: it isn't possible to pinpoint exactly how many
5: people Susanna has encountered in her life so far. What the professor did instead was use statistical guesstimation. He came up with his estimate through educated guessing and calculations based on 20th century studies by the British anthropologist Robin Dunbar.
3: And uh, what he discovered was that we have, typically, we have five intimate friends. We have uh, 15 friends, including casual friends, uh, medium level friends. We have, on the average, 50 good acquaintances. 150 acquaintances in general, and uh, uh, this is sort of the type of people we would invite if we would make a big party. That's sort of our activity network, where we have active interactions on a regular basis, say monthly, and then there are 1,500 people we recognize on site, 5,000 people we can allocate in a way, and then there's a factor of 20 more, so that would be 100,000 encounters that we have over a lifetime of, say, 80 years.
5: 100,000, and that's the average number, that's a lot.
3: And now um, to you, Susanna, you are 36 years old, and when I looked at the details that you uh, uh, gave about your biography that you shared, That tells me that you have probably an above average number of meeting people and having encounters with people. I would say this is probably six would be a good estimate, uh, six new encounters per day. And that would then add up to uh, 70,000 encounters, 70,000 people that you have had some kind of interaction with over your lifetime. And and by encounter, I mean um, not just any casual encounter, for example, if you see someone on the opposite side of the street, but uh, encounter I would define as an interaction that you have or had with someone that is a little meaningful in the sense that there is a small lasting impression, for example, that that you would remember this interaction for at least a week.
5: Before I even start trying to remember them, um, I can't even get over how many I've I've met in the first place.
3: Yeah, that's a very large number. Um, and it's also um, a sign of the times. For example, there have been studies about uh, the encounters in the Middle Ages. And typically... People were confronted with about 100 people in their life uh, in the Middle Ages, typically. Now, in these days, it's uh, 100,000.
5: These are obviously averages, but there's a ratio explaining why some of us happen to be meeting more people than others. The principle was first defined in the late 19th century by the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto.
3: And he found the uh, so-called 80-20 principle to be valid uh, for these very lopsided distributions. And one actually finds it in in many, many different contexts. For example, this uh, 20-80 principle is valid in the distribution of wealth. Uh, The 20% of the most wealthy people own 80% of the country's wealth, 20% of car drivers, cause 80% of car accidents. And in general, 80% of consequences come from only 20% of causes. And for example, in the corona pandemic at the moment, one can also say that 20% of infected people cause 80% of new infections. And they are the super spreaders. Now, in terms of encounters, there's an an analogy. Uh, we have the super connectors and they have a large degree of what is called uh, relationship intelligence and they, they manage to, to turn casual encounters into encounters and encounters into casual acquaintances, casual acquaintances into acquaintances and then lose friends, friends and so forth.
5: Even though Christian Hesse's estimate for how many people I've met makes sense to me, I don't think I'm much of a super connector. I rarely turn encounters into new friends, and I'm also not really that into talking to strangers. But for these two artists we met in Berlin, new encounters are integral to their most recent project.
1: I'm Boris Jöns. I'm um, partly visual artist, but also make music, and I'm from Berlin.
2: I'm Alexander Kalsen. I'm a visual artist living in Berlin near Alexanderplatz.
4: Alexander and Boris approach strangers on a regular basis. Their project?
1: The Eagle der Begegnung, like it's a hedgehog of encounter. It's a street survey basically. And we built a, like a little portable um, sculpture that has a map of this area on the back. And then we ask people about their like favorite spots of encounter, where, where do they like to meet? And then we talk a bit, little bit about this space. Like we have a little power tool and then they drill into the body of this uh, hedgehog and they place a, a little a wooden stick into it and we attach like a little protocol on it.
4: The map on their sculpture shows the area around Berlin Alexanderplatz, once the heart of East Berlin.
2: So everything's changed from an inner city main boulevard to uh, quite unattempted now. It, like many shops went away, bars, and so, or uh, they got a new character, like more of uh, this commercial character.
1: Yeah, we, we were walking around here a lot and we also had the impression it's, it's a little dead.
4: <laughs> What's still there, but rather dilapidated, is this Haus der Statistik, the house of statistics, a 46,000 square meter building complex.
1: The House of Statistics was the former GDR Center for Statistics. It's like a data center mm-hmm. for all the GDR life, and based on these data, they made their like seven year plans. So it was a very important institution for the GDR, and yeah, it ended in 1989.
4: After the fall of the wall, the federal government used the House of Statistics until 2008. It then sat completely empty for a decade. City officials wanted to tear it down and developers wanted to build luxury housing in its place. But activists, including Alexander and Boris, saved it. Now, different players, among them the Berlin Senate, have plans for a community-spirited overhaul of the building complex. Until the remodeling starts, parts of the House of Statistics are used by different groups – environmentalists, NGOs and artists.
1: We, we're all like called pioneers and, and that's really true. It's kind of like an empty building with uh, no infrastructure and then there's this, this range of people having to manage somehow.
4: Right now, new apartments, a tax office and spaces for artists and activists are planned for the new House of Statistics. The Igel der Begegnung is trying to find out what the neighbors think of this transformation.
2: How, how can the neighborhood uh, here, which is already there, can find also a, a place inside the, the new area? And and also um, we got the impression that the neighborhood was scared. And so we we asked the question, so where are the
1: places of encounter here? And um, what kind of encounter do you expect from the Hauser statistic. That's uh, how we got interested in this quality of encounter in this area also because it, it seemed like a very important thing for survival somehow. We learned that as an artist, it, it's kind of not enough to just be in your studio space. You have to offer something for the common good.
4: On a walk through the neighborhood, we stopped to look at some of the 50 places of encounter which the Eagle der Begegnung has documented so far.
1: We're standing in front of the former Sternchen, which was like a, a communal beer garden, where people could just swing by and have a beer. But you could also rent the rooms, like in the GDR times, right? You could rent the rooms for your birthday, for any kind of party.
4: Now it's just a supermarket on the ground floor of an apartment complex. The beer garden is gone.
1: It's really interesting. I think like the whole area was I mean, like was like a big area that was completely planned. Uh, by um, uh, city planners and architects of the GDR and they had it all sorted out. There's like these uh, apartment blocks, then there's like uh, children care, uh, wash houses and all these like, um, they, had, they had a plan where the socialist human lives, where they go shopping, where they find this and that. So they had like this idea of versorgung, like, uh, like where, what does one need? And they had it all sorted out. So they had this beer garden was like one planned thing. And of course, all of this, uh, with when capitalism came in in the 90s, it all disappeared from one day to the other. And some people tell us uh, if the house of statistic could have like a couple of rooms where you can celebrate your birthday, that would be great, for example.
4: Something that remains a popular place in the neighborhood is the Imbis Oase, a tiny fast food kiosk. It's located right in front of the House of Statistics. It used to be a German snack bar in GDR times and now it serves Vietnamese food.
2: We see that uh, still now there are many people are like neighbors coming there having a beer. They know very much about the owner when he's there because sometimes he has to collect his children from the kindergarten and then he's like 15 minutes close. And they are very used to it. They know it and they okay, I have to wait 15 minutes, then he's back. And then they wait or come back and have then the beer later. It's also important because now where the the whole area is changing, the question is there if if this imbus can stay there or if it has to, to move.
4: How the area will evolve is still uncertain. Boris and Alexander imagine keeping the Eagle der Begegnung going as a guide through the ongoing transformation. They like approaching strangers around the neighborhood. One of the most memorable encounters happened next to a vanished bench.
1: We were in front of a supermarket, not far away from here, and uh, we talked about a sitting area in front of the supermarket that had been torn away because it was like very also very popular for uh, alcoholics <laughs> uh, they're hanging out there, and I think that was the reason why it was taken away this person, like an older man, he also remembered that area and he thought, ah, it's a it's a shame that this place is not anymore. But he could understand, yeah, the alcoholics were kind of a problem. It was kind of interesting how he try to solve it he said I don't deny them to stay there but maybe they could have special days (laughs) and he envisioned like all these signs and he had this sense of organizing the stay of this encounter and he struggled to tolerate them but also he didn't really want to get involved and so that kind of epitomized this like messiness of encounter and I I really like this um, talk Like, encounter's not always nice. It's messy.
5: Encounters in real life are one thing, but these days it seems like the real Wild West is online. We talked with a psychologist trying to make internet encounters as substantial as those that happen face-to-face.
6: Our definitions of what is a real encounter are shifting.
5: Lara Oti is a psychologist and executive coach in Washington state. She's also an advisor for an app called Friended, which connects users one-on-one after they take a kindness pledge. The idea is to provoke spontaneous but authentic encounters.
6: Two people were connected and one of them was struggling, uh, was a younger man, and he was struggling with coming out as gay to his parents in a very conservative family. And the other person um, kind of talked him through you know what he wanted to have happen. They came up with, this is all over text, you know, this is direct messaging. They, they came up with a plan of he could share it with his family physician because that's somebody he felt close to and he could kind of give it a trial run and see how that went and get feedback and then strategize about how to bring it to his family. Like that, that's a one-time connection, but so deep and meaningful and something that um, I'm sure he'll remember for the rest of his life, even if he never talks to that other person again.
5: So real encounters have shifted. Not only can they happen online, they can even be a one-time experience. But either way, Lara Oti says certain components are indispensable.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think about this as kind of like, you know, what are the main ingredients of online connection which I think are the main ingredients of in-person connection. They're the same, but we have to learn different ways of conveying them online because we don't have all of the same cues that we have when we're in person with somebody. Um, but psychological safety would be, be one you know, at the top of the list. If we don't have to fear being judged by another person,
5: we're automatically more comfortable expressing ourselves. She also lists warmth, openness, and curiosity as part of the recipe for successful online encounters. And on top of that, we just have to be ready to adapt.
6: Neurobiology is, you know, when we're not in person, we don't have the the cues. Our mirror neurons are not firing with the visuals of seeing each other, and that puts us at a deficit. And so we have to rely on other senses, right? Like tone of voice right now is extremely important as we talk to each other. And think about when we move to email, like that is a, even a different scale. How do you convey, you know, that warmth and sincerity over email, um, and you have to be careful about formality, informality. Um, you know, like your tone comes through in punctuation. Uh, it's all—it's like a new set of skills that we are learning to to develop and navigate real time.
5: I wanted to know how many substantial online encounters the psychologist and coach has had herself.
6: First off, I don't really use social media, so I think I'm a bit of an outlier that way. I'm not on Facebook. I don't even have a Twitter account. I do use Instagram, but it's pretty limited. But what's unique about my situation is that my work sets me up to have a fair number of online-only connections So that's where the numbers start to add up for me. So I was, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to ballpark it and I came up with, you know, maybe 80, 85 online connections that I would consider deeply substantive because I'm talking to clients and they're sharing their fears, their dreams, their really authentic selves with me.
5: Lara Oti avoids social media because it's not a great use of her time. She also points out that it has its pitfalls, no matter your online skill set. You know, with
6: social media and meeting in more public ways, there's a tendency to compare ourselves, and that can be particularly damaging when we're getting, you know, the so-called highlight reel, as one of my friends likes to say, like this highly polished. And these posed moments, um, and we come away from those experience feeling less than, you know, in the worst cases, there's certain social media that kind of promotes anti-connection, the bullying or ghosting or trolling behaviors that are so painful for people.
5: During the COVID-19 pandemic, meeting over the internet became more common than ever but there are also concerns that connecting online more and more is actually making us more lonely.
6: So yeah, when I think about like, you know, what what moves us toward good connection and what gets us off track or creates loneliness, a, a lot of it has to do with how we're showing up. So If we're a person who feels generally pretty good about ourselves or we have pretty robust social skills, then we'll show up for online connection in an open way, in a more generous way, or even offer support for another person. But if we don't feel connected or, or we might be lacking in social skills or the confidence about who we are, then we might try really hard to act in a way that we think is going to deliver that, that sense of belonging that we all crave.
5: So, given that how we meet online can be so dependent on who we are offline, do you think online spaces are ultimately bringing us together, or are they driving us apart?
6: The big answer is, like, we we sort of still don't know. I think it's both, honestly. I think it helps people connect, and it has the potential to make us feel more disconnected. But, you know, we're social animals, you know, we're wired for connection and for belonging, and I think it's easy to see how that can lead both toward and away from more pro-social behavior.
5: You can spend hours online without having a single real encounter or five minutes with a stranger in real life and remember them for decades.
0: I'm Jacques Morcos. I'm a professor and co chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida.
4: Jacques Morcos grew up in Lebanon in the Middle East. From the age of 16, he wanted to become a neurosurgeon.
0: So I was a medical student at the American University uh, in Beirut, where I was doing my medical studies. And uh, it was the middle of the civil war. It was 1983. The war in Lebanon really lasted from 1975 to 1990. There was a U.S. A peacekeeping force stationed near uh, the airport uh, in Beirut.
4: On October 23rd, 1983, amidst the civil war, Jacques Morcos encountered someone he would never forget.
0: On that Sunday morning, uh, a suicide bomber essentially destroyed that barrack of US Marines. And uh, there were more than 200 dead uh, and several wounded. And uh, many of them, most of them, came to our medical center and, of course, Everybody that who was available, students, nurses, anybody, it was a mass casualty situation.
4: He remembers there was no more space inside for the injured and dead. So
0: the chief resident, w- who was struggling to, to keep up with the wounded, and just, you know, pointed me to go in the direction of one specific Marine who was uh, alive and... Uh, Awake, uh, was bleeding from the left side of his head and the temple area, and I was e- e- extremely nervous. Of course, I was. I was terrified.
4: Jacques Morcos had witnessed mass casualties during Lebanon civil war, but this was shocking to him. He was just a medical student now, faced with a bombing victim, a young black marine with a serious head injury.
0: I look at him and I'm. Trying to figure out what do I do? How do I stop the bleeding? Um, and then I kind of glance at my chief resident, who's helping two or three other people, and he points to me to put my hand on the wound, and I'm, I did it. Clearly, I was trembling. And then he looks at me, this marine looks at me, and say, "You will be fine, doc." So. This is a patient who's looking at his supposed doctor and reassuring him that you, the doctor, even though you look nervous and you look like you're actually don't know what you're doing, but you're going to be fine.
4: He only spent five to ten minutes with the injured American.
0: We didn't talk much. Uh, just I'm putting my hand on his temple that was bleeding and waiting for him to go inside to make it to the operating room. I don't even remember if we've exchanged other words because I'm looking, after he told me this, I'm looking at him and uh, imagining what what a great individual this is.
4: Almost four decades later, in the middle of the protests following George Floyd's murder, the 60-year-old wrote an article about his experience with the injured black Marine for the Journal of Neurosurgery. He titled it, Brief Encounters That Last a Lifetime.
0: You beat racism by by giving personal stories, by reaching every other person one heart at a time. And uh, yeah, I just felt it was the right time for me to say that story in the middle of the, the racism uh, upheaval that, that continues to be going on in, in the U.S. at least.
4: To this day, The neurosurgeon can recall the Marine's grace in the immediate aftermath of the bombing. This
0: Marine should have been cursing me for being... He he doesn't know which factions uh, came and killed their more than 200 people. He should be cursing. He should be angry. He should not trust me. I'm just another Lebanese face. And yet, he's absolutely accepting his fate. So I just was an immensely impactful experience. It's part of the things that affects me, how I honestly deal with patients, how I myself appreciate what stoic behavior is. I mean, many times I'll be operating, I'm in a tough part of the surgery, and I'm trying to look for some serene moments in my life, you know, to keep me going, and many times this encounter comes into my mind.
4: He still doesn't know the Marine's name. He doesn't even know if he's alive. For years he's been looking for him, but requests to the military have turned up nothing. There's one more hope. Jacques Morcos plans to attend an upcoming gathering of the 1983 Beirut bombing survivors.
0: I just want to hug him and thank him and, and hope he's alive and that he's had a meaningful, successful, healthy life. because. Through him, I believe I have helped many patients because of his inspiration, and he needs to hear it.
5: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Big Ponder. The music was composed by Jonathan Kroll. We'd like to thank Jacques Morcos, Lara Oti, Alexander Carlson, Boris Juhns, and Christian Hesse for their participation. This episode was produced by me, Susanna Edelbaum, and Monica Mueller-Kroll,
3: You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of The Big Pond that make this series possible.